Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice by some of the most senior female energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Schutten. Today we will talk to Gita Sankapanavar, a co-founder and president of Grafton Asset Management a one billion energy investment firm based in Calgary, Alberta. Gita had a very clear career path in her head when she was studying, except it wasn't a path into the energy business. A dramatic event changed that trajectory. She will draw some lessons from that experience. We will talk about unconscious bias at work, how real leadership is people following you because they want to, not because they have to. And why is it so much harder for women to achieve that? And how to network properly. It is not just about exchanging business cards. Thank you very much for joining us. And lovely to have you here with us. It's wonderful to be here with you, Alexandra. So let's start from the very beginning. You had a very busy career. Where did you actually grow up? And how did that influence your personality and your ambitions? I'm a child of the world. I am very comfortable at home in lots of different situations, lots of different cultures, used to adapting. I'm the child of two mathematicians. One is my father is a pure theoretical mathematician where where nothing he does will have any practical value for at least 50 years. And my mom is a math professor. Wow. So I guess they place quite a lot of focus on education. Is that how you felt? Education is the single most important thing to my parents. It is what propelled them out of poverty and allowed them to help our entire branch of our family. With the money that my dad sent back to India, he literally helped educate hundreds of our relatives who are now professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers all across the world. And so, yeah, education is the single most important thing for my parents. Then you end up in MIT, but that wasn't when you decided you wanted to dedicate your life to the energy industry. Tell us a bit more about that part of the life. I went to MIT because it was a fantastic technically training ground. That's, uh, that was for my parents. For myself, I went because I thought it could positively affect my, my dating prospects. I was a relatively boring, dorky young girl at the time. And uh, there was about a seven to one male-female ratio at the time. Though, uh, <laughs> though I think the actual ratio of viable men to women was more like seven to one in the other way. So it was a great experience. Met amazing people got to just learn and all my time taking classes that I wanted to take and just absolutely loved my university degree. Amazing. So how did you enter the energy industry? It's a bit by a fluke, actually. I was training to be a pure research scientist. So I was working in a laboratory for neuroscientists. I had taken the entrance exam for medical school, was looking at the Harvard-MIT joint PhD program. And then my, my junior year at university, I got cancer. It was pretty bad. And for about a year, it took me out of commission. I, I lived in a hospital for a year doing chemo and surgeries and radiation therapy. And when I came out of that, I just had zero interest anymore to be in a business uh, or in, a, in a, an environment, anything to do with hospitals, doctors, medical professionals, et cetera. I wanted to be around people who were having real impact on the world in a short-term way. So not where their research would be would be held 30 to 50 years out, 
but where impact could be seen immediately because I didn't know if I was going to be around for the uh, for the longer term because uh, I was given a very high probability of getting it again getting cancer again I in my 20s. So I put my resume in with a number of uh, firms that were recruiting at MIT, and I got hired by a management consulting company called McKinsey and & Company, and I started my career there, which is a great training ground. Uh, got to see a lot of different industries, meet people who were, were very, very much focused on immediate impact, and uh, quite enjoyed my time there. Realized I was a business builder, and left McKinsey to become an entrepreneur, built a cross-border services business between uh, the U.S. and Canada. And then I got tapped to, to lead North America and strategic global outsourcing for a company called um, Cambridge Solutions. And when that company was sold to our largest client exchanging, I went and worked for my old VC at, at a firm called New Vernon Capital, which was about a $3 billion blue chip emerging markets focused investments where energy was really only known as a positive extended value hedge on emerging markets. And then I met a guy <laughs> and uh, I moved after dating long distance for about two and a half years, Calgary, Alberta, to make an honest man of uh, the guy who is now my husband. And when I came to Calgary, Alberta, I didn't know anything about the city, the people. I had no relationships here. And what I did is I just started meeting people and figuring out what the opportunities were in the city. And as I learned about it, I realized that there was, uh, we have a world-class energy business here. So I moved to, to Calgary, Alberta, and began learning about our energy business here. We have a world-class energy industry that requires tens of billions of new capital investment annually, but our energy businesses were not on the radar of global sovereign institutional and private capital. And it was a bridge I wanted to help build. And so I partnered with a, a leader in the local uh, community in energy, and we built a business together. We raised and deployed over a, a billion dollars, and in four years, we became the third largest energy investment firm in, in Canada with investors from all over the, the, the world. And that's an incredible story. And again, for those who don't know you personally, I can testify that when you talk about Canada, you sound like you're from there and you were always been Canadian. So <laughs> I can certainly hear the passion every time we speak. I would like to circle back slightly because it's quite hard to ignore that there was an incredibly dramatic event in your life that shaped your career, that shaped who you are in the way that most of us, you know, we didn't go through such dramatic events. Were there any lessons from you having cancer when you came out that you wish, you know, you could pass on to people? Is there any big like mindset changes that you've experienced then? Before I had the diagnosis, I had a life plan professionally. Personally, I was a good conservative Indian girl, but a health event changed everything. And so the lesson I would give somebody that I had learned is to adapt and to pivot and that the Although it did not seem like it at the time, looking in the rearview mirror, it was the most, one of the most transformative experiences I had in my life. And from it, I learned that if, if you can be flexible and willing to pivot to different realities, they can become just as fulfilling or even more so than your original plan. So I went from having a very specific plan, uh, both professionally and personally. And today, I have a very successful career that's been you know, a driver purpose in my life. I've been able to add value to our community. And I'm married to this wonderful, gorgeous man that I would never have connected with otherwise. If, if you can be willing and, and flexible to pivot to different realities, they can become even better in the rearview mirror than you had thought. It's, 
that's probably the single biggest lesson I would share. Things that things look different in the rearview mirror. They're not always what you think they are as you're experiencing them. And it's a value. It's a lesson on the value of embracing transformations and pivots in the road ahead, both personally and professionally. Yeah, I feel like I'm starting to realize that it's a skill to be able to see an advantage in in every challenge, or to be able to to turn things into positive like it, it's certainly a skill and i've been speaking to quite a few female leaders in energy out there by now to realize it's there's one overlaying personality trait is no matter what the situation is they always look at how can i turn this into my advantage or how can i turn a challenge into an opportunity I, i'm sure you've heard the quote attributed charles darwin or leon megason it's not quite sure where they basically talk about it is not the strongest species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. You know, in the energy business, this is a, a cyclical business, and there's, there's a lot of opportunities where to pivot. I think if you can pivot, if you can persevere and persist and have the courage to be aggressive or unreasonable or passionate about something new, that's what makes people change agents. And it's the courage that, that makes teams better companies better and communities better that is really cool what you said because it being a being a woman you face with this other part of challenges and for those who again haven't seen you you're also an ethnic minority and also you have an extremely complicated surname which i'm sure you've had all sorts of troubles <laughs> with so how did that feature in your life did you ever feel like it was harder to progress because you're a woman this is an incredibly, you know, difficult and uncomfortable topic to talk about. You know, as one of the few women in my at MIT in my year, um, I never talked about being the only woman in my class. You know, other than as I said earlier, on how it could have positively affected my dating process. As the only woman in my graduating class to be hired by McKinsey, I was I was used to being the only woman in the team room or at the client site, but 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 just wasn't discussed. It is only now at at the leadership table, at the boardroom table but I'm actually comfortable talking about my journey. And the reason is if you speak about the challenges of being a woman in business or leadership, the person on the other side of the table from you can often think that you are whining or complaining or, or asking for, for some sort of special treatment, or, or they may just not know how to handle it because it's still a bit of a rarity. It is very hard for women to talk about because we're, we're often too busy sitting in. If you had asked me at the beginning of my career, or before seeing the Heidi Howard business case from Harvard, or reading Lean In, that I was biased, I would have completely denied it. I would have said that it's, it's or that I had difficulties being a woman in, in the workplace. I would have said, not about the world we live in, that's the easy answer. Rather, it's about you know, our performance in it as individuals. How hard am I willing to work for what I want? I think today with, with more than 20 years of, of work experience, 20, okay, um, more than 20 years, I just don't say the, na- the number, under my belt, I would say that this, that this unconscious bias that exists across the world isn't creating an equal playing field. And we have to acknowledge it in order to understand what we need to do personally to counteract it. And so have you, have you heard of the Heidi uh, Howard story, Alexandra? Yes, the, but there's still the, many people who don't believe it, which is frustrating. Well, there's, there's probably three different versions of it. There's the actual case study, which you, can, which you can Google, which is on Heidi Resin, 
who was a successful entrepreneur who maintained an extensive personal professional network that she leveraged to become a, a very successful in, investor. And, you know, a regular Harvard business case was, was written out of it, one of those leadership case studies. And, and it was given to two groups of, of folks. And the first group got the Heidi case, and the second group got the same case with the name changed from Heidi to Howard and the pronoun she to he. And then both groups were surveyed. And the good news is that both students thought that they were equally competent. And, you know, and the bad news is that everybody liked Howard. He was a good guy, great leader. You know, everyone wanted to work with him. But Heidi, not so much. She was selfish, out for herself, not a good people manager, political. Students weren't sure they wanted to work for her. And the only difference in the case was the name and the pronoun. And, and this was the first seminal study on, on unconscious bias. And what it was key to demonstrate is that power and success are positively correlated with likability in men and negatively correlated with likability for women. And why is this so important? It's because real leadership is about people not just following you because they have to, because you have a title, but because they want to and they believe in you and they follow you with passion and enthusiasm because you share the same goals and you inspire them. That requires the ability to build internal ties upwards downwards, laterally, to build like a full jungle gym of network. And that is hampered by this unconscious bias. And these are stereotypes that we are raised with and live in, you know, without even realizing it. And, and, and none of us are intending to do this on purpose. It's just how we've been conditioned to, to think about because of the history that we all live with. And it's important because even in setting the objective standards by which we hire people, judge performance and promote people, there is this subjectivity and unconscious negative bias by people who are hiring women, judging our performance and determining our career trajectory. It's something that I care deeply about, and uh, as you know, and, uh, if, and I think part of the start is just shining a light on the problem and discussing it openly, just the same way that we've destigmatized mental health and we've destigmatized the need to get you know, support. For that, this, this has to be destigmatized as well. And with, with people understanding it, then they can take action versus just, as you said earlier, saying, you know, everyone just says there's no, there's no issue. One of, one of the things that I think is, is acknowledging that there is unconscious or subconscious bias, which some companies I've heard have been implementing these sort of tests in the beginning of their careers or entering the company, which makes you open your eyes and go, okay, I, I am biased. I can work on it. At least I'm now conscious of it. What's the next step after that? I think there's a few different areas to go through. I think as women in leadership, we have responsibilities in supporting other women, in ensuring that our own story is known so that people can see, you know, the path that we've taken and, and decide and you know, they can do better because how can you dream what you cannot see? And, uh, and then in, in ensuring that we open uh, the door to these conversations with um, people at the executive table or the boardroom table. And so I'll, I'll take each of these one by one. I think with, with younger women, mentoring and sponsorship. And it's not just mentoring, so it's not just time. It's actual sponsorship. And whether you're a man or a woman, it's asking for help it's building those networks and helping them build their networks. I'll tell you the story in Calgary. I met this, this young gal. She came in for part of a team that was presenting to us on, on our reserve report for year end. So 
the, the folks that were coming over from the third-party reserve engineering firm were pretty senior, and she was brought along, and she was a younger woman. I think I, I probably accosted her, handed her my business card, and like, call me, because she's, you know, she's sitting here at the boardroom table. And thank God she followed up. And so in a 30-minute coffee, I introduced her to six CEOs in women in leadership in Calgary, because we have a lot of them, women who run billion-dollar-plus companies. With, probably before even the end of that 30 minutes, four out of the six have already responded with dates and times to meet. And that is the power of networking. It's the power of relationships and building that support network for that next generation. So, and it's not just, how can I help you? It's driving forward to give them those networks and that support. So that's kind of number one. I think number two is, is as you think about sharing stories, it, there are so many different paths to leadership and it's not for everybody but if if you share if more women share their stories on their path then it becomes easier for for younger women to look at it and say this is something that I want to do or I could do and then the third one is also on the softer side it's basically having the conversations on unconscious bias with all the people men and women that you know because we all have it and and so every single board I sit on I've had at least one dinner where I have literally told them the Heidi Howard story, and we've talked about it. Every single uh, conversation with a leader or an executive, a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, this always comes up because it's something I am deeply passionate about, helping women in business and women in leadership. So if you want to work with me, you know that this is, this is something I'm passionate about. And so therefore, other people ask about it. And so it's just start sharing the stories and giving a forum for guys to ask questions like how can they help women in the workplace? You know, what can they do? And then as part of it also, there's the harder piece, which is if a, if a bank comes or, or a service provider comes and they, they're doing a, we're doing a beauty contest for one of our companies. The first question I ask is if they show up with 10 guys or don't you have any women on your team? That never happens again. There's a lot of different things that you can do as a woman in leadership, and then as a guy, I think if you just start by recognizing that there is a problem and understanding that the need to build and amplify the voices of the women at the table around you is, is something that you can just start doing. No, and I'm, I'm glad you're using specific examples. And I know at least several women who would never bring up the fact that they're feminist, oh my God, dirty word, because they think it will, it will damage their career prospects. You know, the mindset is certainly something that you need to start uh, with. Are there any other uh, stories, maybe concrete examples you can give of when you had a conversation and the person actually didn't realize, thought of themselves as being exclusive and doing everything right, and then was was shocked to to understand that it wasn't the case at all? Uh, <laughs> constantly. Um, most people, men and women, the, the vast majority, want to do what's right. They want to ensure diversity and inclusion in their organization. And they think they are. You have to start with facts. And the facts are women make up less than 20% of Fortune 500 executive officers, right? And, and less than 20% of the board seats of S&P 500 companies. And it drops to under 6% when you look at women who are heads of state. And if we continue at our current rate of change, it'll take us over 100 years to reach gender parity. 
what it, you've heard all these statistics before, but what does it mean? It means that, that overall women are not represented where decisions are made. And, and why is that important? What does this mean for you, for your career, or, or for me? It means that it affects how you are perceived and promoted. It affects the importance of communication, how decisions are made, and how you connect and build relationships with the people around you. And that holds for CEOs. But when I have a conversation with CEOs in our portfolio companies, or in, in my industry or my peers who were just having a breakfast or a lunch, they all know that I care deeply about women in business and women in leadership and the success of women in business and women in leadership. And so we normally start off by, you know, when this conversation happens, I, I often get pushback. And the pushback is, because this is a tough conversation, and the pushback is, no, 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 I don't care. I'm gender blind. I just want to hire, and this is the most I just want to hire the best person for the job. That is what they say to me. I just want to hire the best person for the, for the role or for the job. I don't care if it's a man or a woman, whether they're purple or they're yellow. I have literally had this said to me probably, you know, more times than, than I can count. It's a, what, what I do in that scenario is I try and just educate because fundamentally, if you don't, if you, if, if you end the conversation right there, people don't understand the unconscious bias exists. And where most affects people is in that hiring and decision and promoting. For example, you can get to a manager, director level, or maybe even VP of a smaller company based on pure, sheer competency. So massive competency in your role, significant work ethic. But if you want to get into VP level and above, and especially into the C-suite, the skills that you need go beyond competency and, and sheer work ethic and capacity. They also go into your ability to build relationships and networks that help better inform your judgment and decision-making. And when you are getting chosen for that promotion, that first promotion to director or to, um, to VP, you're, you're basically competing. If there's, if there's a man and a woman side by side, typically the guy has had more ad hoc social interactions with the person who's making that hiring decision, the CEO probably at that point or senior um, CXO uh, individual. They've had more ad hoc interactions, whether it's beers after work, whether it's golf tournaments, whether it's some sporting event there's been more ad hoc interactions. And so when it comes time to choosing between the two, it is very easy to say they're both equally competent, just like the Heidi Howard case study, but I know him, he's a really good guy. And then they choose a guy and they promote him. When I bring up the Heidi Howard case study, or I bring up the fact that the US Philharmonic has 30% women in their orchestra and they just did their first gender blind first audition last year, and just by not showing the man or the woman, they, they percent straight past through to the next audition. Just by, show, by, by bringing up these types of examples of unconscious bias, it just starts questions to be asked in the minds of people who fundamentally care about equality and diversity and inclusion in their workplace. And it causes them to start thinking more about how do they help women on their team? And as a result of these types of conversations, I have literally had CEOs, bankers, service providers, friends come back to me within months, weeks, 
years and say, hey, here's a young woman on my team. Can, can we have breakfast? I'd like her to meet you. Or can we have, can you come and speak to somebody, uh, to a group of women in my, in my organization? Because they care. They just don't know that this gap exists. Absolutely. And you've mentioned before that, you know, the power of networking is important. We build trust through, you know, sometimes having a beer together, all of those things you mentioned, like hunting together, fishing together, playing golf together. It's building that trust and report. And quite often, unconsciously, women are excluded because they can't drink scotch or whiskey and they don't want to go to those types of say or they don't drink and you don't they don't smoke cigars you know what's the alternative then do you feel just talking to women or finding you know is it breakfast is it lunch is it how can we do it better when i started out i i never had any formal standards of networking that i wanted to live by right it's and i probably should have read the book how to win friends and influence people and, and, and probably more than once but what I would say is that there is no greater thing I can share with any woman who wants to be in leadership than the imp- immense importance of building relationships and continuously expanding personal and professional networks. And what I mean by that is I don't mean exchanging business cards. I mean actually really caring. It's about taking a moment to learn about somebody. And so for for younger women, what I would do is I would say, take responsibility to create your own preferred future. Connect with people. It's human nature when when meeting someone new to probe for a minute or two to see if you have something superficially in common. And if nothing is found, we, we mentally turn off. But what I would say is that most people have something interesting to share, whether they know it or even if you don't initially see it. But if you're willing to search for it, bonds can be created with, with the most unlikely people. And I would start by first just looking around your, your existing company and your existing team and start by asking people for coffee. Ask people, ask your boss, ask your boss's boss, ask your, go laterally in your, in your company and just ask people for a coffee and just say you'd like to talk to them about their professional journey. And just ask questions. Be prepared with a list of questions to ask them. Where did they go to university? Exactly like you're asking me right now. How did they choose? How did they grow up? Do they have family? How did they choose to go into the business that they're in? How did they, what was the promotion path they followed? And, and people will share their story. And then take, keep track of what you learn from them. And if they, told you, if they told you that they have a specific interest and you read an article about that interest, forward it to them. Reach back out to them. Ask for their help. And, you know, it's, it's how I met my business partner. He's a white Calgarian, 20 years older than me, has been a leading financier in our energy business for, 30, for three decades plus. And he's an avid, lifelong sportsman, sports fan, hockey, shooting, fishing, golf. And for me, I only saw my first hockey game when I came to Calgary. And, and golf, well, let's just say I've never met a golf ball that I could, I could connect with as in, like, literally hit it. He has become one of my biggest supporters and connectors into the community because he's been blind to gender. And together we found shared ambition, trust, and a, and a desire to promote our, our industry and, and build a business and, and better our community. And so if you are intentional about reaching out and expanding networks and, and be open to building relationships with everybody, not just people you think you have something in common with or who you think can help you, 
just truly to learn. Just by the, the very act of doing so is will create value for you and you will learn something. That's probably my single biggest lesson. In this current environment, it's very unusual for human species to not be constant social contact. And how do you feel the companies can help in this current environment, which is already you know, very stressful? We can't have networking events at the moment. What can the managers do to help the family, not just the women, but the families? Of- I think you're absolutely correct. There is a disproportionate effect on, on, on women. And again, I would just say, you know, acknowledge it, be aware of it, and let it be okay. I think if you can acknowledge it and, and let it be okay and provide the flexibility around work, work hours, work structure, work delivery to meet the needs of the realities of families today, that almost is, from my, from my perspective, that's one of the best things you can do. I think if, if you try and keep schedule and start discounting if people can't attend because of family or because of child issues or because of, you know, you know, a kid is running around crying in the background, you know, that's the worst thing you can do because that creates isolation, that creates separation, and that adds to, to the issue. But I think acknowledging it, you know, injecting some humor in it and being, and being flexible about it and about the needs that we are all facing today, because as you said, you know, we call this social distancing, but fundamentally it's physical distancing while we need more and more social connectivity. And so I'm seeing companies do everything, you know, Zoom drinks and parties or like weekly stand-ups or connect to, to just text reach outs. And uh, just picking up the phone and calling and saying, how are you doing? I think you don't need to solve a person's problem. You just need to, to acknowledge it and be flexible around it. Yeah, I think what rings bells with me is when you said it was like we just need to care and if you care about the person then all it takes is just ask a question or send a text and that's sometimes all it takes to just pick them up feel acknowledged and maybe they can talk to you how to make the situation better so it's very sound advice thank you and then i think from a general perspective i'd say of course you know, just for non-COVID situation, but childcare relief, childcare health are the biggest reason. So I'm in, I'm in an organization called YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization. About 7,000 members across the world and, and in places like, you know, um, Hong Kong, YPO members control, I think, 75% of the Hang Seng. And in places like uh, uh, Canada, we're more smaller to medium-sized businesses. One of the things that YPO has had a huge focus on is women, because less than 7% of YPO uh, members are women, and you have to be a certain size and scale of organization to be in YPO. And so there's been a huge focus on why women can't scale businesses or haven't scaled businesses, because more women are, are small business owners and entrepreneurs than men. Yet, why do their businesses not scale? And there's two primary reasons that have come out of, you know, the task forces internationally on them. And, and one is access to capital. Because capital is given, again, on relationships and trust. And two is childcare tax credits and or ability to access childcare. So, so as you mentioned, the double burden in the household of both being a, uh, the income earner as well as having to deal with uh, being the primary caregiver often. 
Because certainly as a society, we have some things to work on, but uh, with more and more inspiring women as leaders, I think at least we now have uh, some inspiration and some paths that we can see how we can all do better for ourselves and reach higher. So that's the lessons I'm learning. My always final question for everyone is the book that you would recommend that uh, it's either on leadership or in change that made you, let's say, you know, a better leader. I am a voracious reader, so I read quite a bit. Uh, so I have no no one book, but I'll tell you what I just finished reading because I actually happen to have them here on my desk, and so and I and I loved all of them for very different reasons. I would say Mindset by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, which is quite interesting, and I think it's very very valuable because she just you know talks about the power of mindset and fixed mindset and growth mindset. I think it's a very interesting uh, concept. I have What It Takes by Stephen Schwartzman, who was the founder of Blackstone. Very, very fun read. More of a prurient reading for me. And then um, Lewis, The Undoing Project. So, which is just, you know, given my, my, my latent tendencies toward academia, I just, uh, I, love, uh, I love reading about that story because it's the, it's the story of the friendship of uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an excellent, excellent uh, story. Again, more prurient reading for me, but uh, just really, really fun, all for different reasons. I'd recommend those. Oh, amazing. So here are the three books to everyone's Amazon lists right here. So Gita, thank you so much for being with us and all the incredible advice that you have and the insights you've provided. We hope to really see you soon in one of the hopefully soon to be networking events out of the lockdown, but otherwise have a lovely day and thank you again. Thank you, Alexandra. It was great to chat with you. Thank you very much for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast. Please follow us on Spotify or iPhone and don't forget to subscribe to be the first to listen to the new weekly editions. You can do that at Oil and Gas Council website, iCouncil. Have a lovely week and stay safe.